My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church. As always, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, we're pausing the current series that we're in in First and Second Peter because today is Palm Sunday. Um, this is the, on the church calendar. Today marks the start of Holy Week leading up to Good Friday and Easter. It's the day that the church celebrates in remembrance Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And this morning, we're going to be specifically looking at Luke's account in chapter 19. Our, our text for this morning finds itself right at, what the, at the end of what uh, uh, scholars will call the travel narrative, where, where Luke narrates Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem, dropping pins in specific locations and villages along the way to give his readers a sense of ever-approaching destiny that Jesus is progressively proceeding into. He's headed to Jerusalem, and he's headed to the cross. The travel narrative starts in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In the next 10 chapters, Luke is marking the closing gap between Jesus and the cross. And with its climax here, starting in Luke 19, verse 28. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is at the end of his journey and at the end of his life. Jerusalem is near, but one does not simply walk into Jerusalem. So let's pick it up in verse 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on, where on entering you'll find a colt tied on which no one has, have, has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And they were untying the colt. Its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. Here we get a detailed description of how the disciples got a donkey for Jesus. Jesus tells a couple of his disciples to go ahead into the village and they'll see a donkey that's tied up. And when they see that donkey tied up, just take it anyway. And if anyone stops you, say the Lord has need of it. Now this is, this is strange. This is like me telling you to go into the village of Foothill Ranch. And when you get there, you'll find a Honda Accord that has its doors unlocked. It'll be parked outside of Target. And I want you to hotwire that Honda Accord and bring it back here to me. And if anyone stops you, you say, hey, chill, man. This is Josh's car now. <laughs> and they'll say, okay, just let you go. It's strange for someone to say that now, and it would have been strange for someone to say that back then. Unless the person telling you to do that was a king. In which case, the king had every right to commandeer any animal he needed. And with that, we get a glimpse into what Luke is showing Jesus to be. And not only that, he's careful to note that everything happened just like Jesus said it would, showing Jesus' divine foreknowledge of all of the details. Jesus didn't call ahead and reserve the donkey. Luke wants us to see that Jesus knew about the donkey because Jesus is God. But what makes these verses really interesting is what Luke doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us the name of the two disciples. We don't even know if, they're, if, they're a member, if they were members of the 12. He doesn't tell us the name of the village they go to. 
Instead, we get a step-by-step account of the donk of disciples getting a donkey. Tying and untying is mentioned five times. This shows us what we should be paying attention to. Because other than Jesus, the focal point of these verses is a donkey. And the reason for that is because this animal was needed to fulfill the prophecy made about 500 years earlier in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knows this prophecy well. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he's intentionally fulfilling the prophecy so that he can show himself as the king that they've been waiting for. But he's not only showing, not only showing us that he's a king, he's showing us the type of king that he is. The king prophesied in Zechariah, he says he's humble, showing us that Jesus is a humble king. When Matthew records this detail, he actually quotes Zechariah 9.9 and Matthew 21.5. And when he does, he uses a word that is sometimes translated as humble, sometimes translated as meek, sometimes translated as gentle. All of these words give us a better picture of what this king is like. Jesus is a humble, gentle, meek king. Typically, we tend to think the people, uh, the more exalted the person is, the less time they have for ordinary things. That's why our culture is shocked when we see celebrities doing regular things. Years ago, I walked into a Chipotle and saw Reggie Bush, NFL player, Heisman Trophy winner. And I remember thinking, wow, Reggie Bush eats burritos just like me. (laughs) Among us commoners. We assume that the higher the status that someone is, the more distant they are. But that's not the case with this king. He comes to us. He moves towards us humbly. He moved among the common people, but not just the common people. He moved among the least of them. He's the type of king that saw a tiny tax collector named Zacchaeus and drew near to him when no one else would. He's the type of king that stopped to help blind beggars. The type of king that would invite little children to come near to him. A king that spent so much time with outcasts that people insulted him by calling him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. All of this to say that he's a king within reach. Within reach of sinners and outcasts, overlooked, young, dis- disregarded, and the uninvited. He's a friend of those who think they aren't worth anyone else's time. And I think we've all fit into each of these categories at some point in our lives. So this is good news. Because if you feel that way now, cast off or forgotten, this humble king makes it a point to draw near. Near in the darkest moments, near in the saddest seasons, near in the most difficult situations, he draws near. Gentle, meek, lowly, offering rest and comfort for your souls. And as Jesus puts himself on display as a true king, Luke captures two different reactions to it. Let's pick it up, verses 36 through 39. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. 
As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Here, where all of the other gospel accounts speak of crowds, Luke focuses on the disciples. Seeing Jesus on a donkey riding toward Jerusalem, they begin to throw their coats on the road. This makes a makeshift red carpet for the donkey to walk on. It's a sign of reverence and esteem and respect for Jesus' authority. But it's also the people reenacting a scene from 2 Kings, where the Israelites laid their garments on the floor for Jehu to stand on because they were anointing him as king. The disciples, at least in a small part in this moment, understand who Jesus is making himself out to be by riding on a donkey to Jerusalem. They are recognizing him as king. They then rejoice and begin to praise. In verse 38, the people are quoting Psalm 118:26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is a psalm that is typically saying as pilgrims entered into Jerusalem. But the customary psalm, to the customary psalm, Luke adds the king. And it reads, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In Luke's account, of the triumphal entry, there's no mention of palm branches, no mention of people screaming Hosanna, probably because Luke's largely Greek audience wouldn't have understood the references to Messiah. But what they would have understood was that Jesus is a king. So that's how he's presented. The king sent from God the Father himself. And the disciples erupt in praise over his arrival. One of the greatest things about being a dad is grocery shopping. Sometimes when I do the grocery shopping, it's all business. There's a list, and I just stick to the list. But other times, I just go for fun and buy fun stuff. And, and my kids know I have a tendency to do that. So when I walk into the door, in through the door, and I have my bags from Sprouts, they go nuts. And they all form a procession and walk me to the kitchen, watching with anticipation as I unpack the hall. I pull out cookies, and they cheer. I pull out cheese puffs and they worship. I pull out green apple licorice and my son starts dancing in the kitchen. And I pull out a bag of carrots and there's silence. (laughs) And then the two-year-old just erupts in praise. He doesn't particularly enjoy carrots. He just got caught up in the hype. (laughs) Taking the other accounts of Palm Sunday into consideration... It seems that some of Jesus' sincere disciples were the spark for the praise that Jesus received. Then the rest of the thousands of people just got caught up in the hype. I've read estimates of around 250,000 Jewish people that would make the trip to Jerusalem each year for Passover. This crowd would have been absolutely massive. With a mix of both sincere worship from Jesus' disciples and fleeting worship from the rest of the crowd. So it's no wonder why this draws the attention of the Pharisees. They see these actions by Jesus' disciples and called for Jesus to rebuke them. Now, the way that, that Luke structures these verses might feel a little similar to another story that we have in Luke. In chapter 10, there's a story of Jesus and two sisters, Mary and Martha. 
Jesus is visiting, and Martha is busy making preparations while Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha, seeing that Mary is just sitting there, gets super salty and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me here to serve alone? And tell her to help me. See, the arrangement of this narrative starts with the presence of Jesus. And Mary and Martha have two different responses to Jesus' presence. And Martha asked Jesus to, Jesus to rebuke Mary for her response. Then Luke quotes Jesus to tell us whether Mary's response or Martha's response was the correct one. Our passage for this morning follows the exact same structure. The disciples and the Pharisees have two different responses to Jesus. And the Pharisees tell Jesus to rebuke the disciples for their response. They didn't see him as a king. This worship was excessive. Now Luke turns to Jesus for him to show us which is the appropriate response to his presence. And what Jesus says is both expected and unexpected. Let's read it, verse 40. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is saying that he's so worthy of praise that if his disciples are quiet, the stones will cry out in praise of the true king. Whether it comes from humans or stones, Jesus will be praised. But I don't think that's the only thing that Jesus is saying here. Throughout scripture, it's never a good thing when inanimate objects cry out. Abel's blood cried out after the first murder in Genesis 4. Withheld rages cry out in James 5. Wood beams and stones cry out in Habakkuk 2 in response to exploitation and evil gain. The common theme in each of these cases is that things cry out when there's great injustice. So what Jesus is saying is that if he's not recognized and worshipped for who he is, the rocks will cry out because there's something wrong. The Pharisees thought that the adoration and praise being given to Jesus was misguided. Jesus flips it and says, when I present myself as king, what's wrong is being silent. The lack of praise is what's wicked. So here, when it comes to King Jesus, even indifference is injustice and silence is sin. Said another way, Jesus is saying the disciples are correct. He's worthy of all of the praise. Jesus is a worthy king. He's worthy of all the celebration and accolades and praise and worship. And so when we talk about Jesus being worthy, we're talking about his value. We're saying that Jesus has far more value than anything else in existence. So nothing given to him not, or, nor nothing given up for him is a waste. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, my family went on a little vacation. And on one of those days, we decided to do a family-friendly hike. It was paved the entire way. It overlooked the ocean. He had a chance to see whales. So we, we got the kids ready and we went for it. But regret set in very quickly because about 30 seconds in, my two-year-old wanted to be carried and, my five, and his five-year-old brother was already tired and we were still in the parking lot. Um, so I put the two-year-old on my shoulders and told the five-year-old to suck it up. The complaining continued. They were thirsty. It was hot. The child on my shoulders got hungry. I had crackers in my backpack, so I feeding him crackers as he's sitting on my shoulders while we're walking up this paved hill. And crumbs are just falling from his mouth onto my face. <laughs> I'm drenched in sweat. I can smell my wife's skin burning from the sun. 
we were halfway up and the complaining just intensified. Uh, the oldest started to throw her hat in the ring. And so she started questioning why we were doing the hike in the first place. My wife is now carrying the five-year-old and dragging the nine-year-old. Meanwhile, apparently riding on my shoulders while being fed crackers is not enough because the two-year-old on my shoulder starts to cry. And so now there's drool and crumbs falling onto my face. It took us about an hour to get to the summit. And we get together for a family photo, and this is the picture that we get. <laughs> Two faces tell you the entire story. And I remember what I was thinking in that moment. Was it worth it? Was all of this worth it? Was it worth all the effort, all the time, all the pain? See, in our, in our heads, we're always running this, this valuation, asking ourselves if the things that we're pursuing are worth the time and the effort and the energy that we spend to pursue them. Sure, I can stay up till midnight, but is it worth being tired for the next two months? Sure, I can eat that bowl of top ramen, but is it worth me feeling puffy for the next two days? One of, the, one, of the, one of the beautiful things about Jesus is that we don't have to ask ourselves that question. He's always worth it. Jesus is infinitely worthy of everything. The coats of the disciples found no greater purpose than in being thrown to the ground at the feet of a donkey that carried this king. Because he's worthy. There is no greater use of anything that we have than to be thrown down in worship and obedience of this king. It takes the guesswork out of serving and giving and teaching and greeting and working and raising kids. Anything you do out of a sincere love and worshipful obedience to this king is never too much. He's worthy of it all. You don't have to run the numbers to figure out whether anything you did for Christ was a waste of time because it wasn't. He's worthy. So Jesus' response to the Pharisees' criticism marks a turning point in the passage. And Luke, his attention shifts from the crowds to Jesus. Let's pick it back up in the remainder of the passage, verses 41 through 44. And when he drew, new, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you... Even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The jubilation the crowd finds is a stark contrast to what we see here in Jesus. While the crowd cheers, Jesus weeps. And the Greek word for weep here is a strong one. Jesus isn't just tearing up. He's, he's audibly sobbing. It's the same word for wailing. He's overcome with sadness saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. 
See, what's stirring the sadness of the Savior is his, the unwillingness of the people to come near. This is reminiscent of the prophet Jeremiah lamenting over the people of God who fooled themselves into thinking they were right with God. They had false prophets saying, peace, peace, when God says there was no peace. Their sin needed to be dealt with. And that's what Jesus came to do. And they rejected him. They didn't recognize him for who he was. That's what Jesus means when he says they didn't know the time of their visitation. Their Savior had come and they'd missed him. God was coming to them with terms for the reconciliation and they missed it. They didn't know the things that made for their peace. And as a result, the city would be judged and destroyed. But this, this shows us something of the heart of our Savior. Because he could have looked at the city that was headed for destruction, shrugged his shoulders with indifference and said, you did this to you. He could have looked at them with apathy and callousness, but he didn't. Instead, he wept. Because he's not just a humble king, not only a, not only a worthy king, he's a compassionate king. He's not indifferent towards us. He's not indifferent towards you. He cares, he longs, he seeks, he grieves. This text shows us that he feels that way towards us, even when we willfully push him away. Now, if I were to rank sin, I think killing God has to be on the top of the list. But knowing that they would kill him still wasn't enough for him to move from his compassion on them. He still longed for the people that rejected him. This reminds us of the parable Jesus told us about a wealthy man and his son. A son that rejected his father, asked for his inheritance, and then wasted it all. No money, nowhere to go. He hired himself out as a servant. So poor that he found himself longing for the food he was feeding the pigs with he was hired to care for. His only hope was to go back to his father, this time not as a son, but as a slave. But as he approaches the father, Jesus said his father saw him while he was still a long way off and runs to him. The implication being made that even though his son had acted with so much disdain for his father and the blessings his father offered, the father was still daily scanning the horizon, hoping he would come home. And when the son returned, he wasn't met with anger and frustration. He was met with mercy and forgiveness because the father just wanted him back. So if you find yourself today in the place of that son, having done things that you never thought you would do, going places you never thought it was possible for you to go. Passages like these should tell you that God's default posture towards you is not one of frustration. It's one of compassion. Regardless of the depth of our sin, this king still longs to make peace. And the compassion we see here didn't just stay as a feeling. He doesn't just pity us. That compassion moved him to do what needed to be done in order to make for our peace. Because of our sin, there's no peace between us and God. But in love and mercy and compassion, Jesus became our substitute, taking the punishment for our sin so that our relationship with the God that created us and loved us could be put back right. That's why the Bible says Jesus is our peace. And here we see the compassion and mercy that he walked in. These are the things that make for our peace. This is the gospel, and it shows us our good news for this morning. 
In Jesus, we have a humble king that moved towards us, a compassionate king that died for us, and a worthy king we can rejoice in. That compassion moved him to make the terms of our peace, and those are the terms that still stand for us today. Jesus still longs for you and wants you to know and accept the things that make for your peace. He's humble, he's worthy, he's compassionate. He's inviting you in to rejoice in that. But I'm not saying that only for people who have not yet come to Christ. I'm saying that for those of us that may have forgotten. Those of us that already belong to Jesus but have lost sight of the compassion that our Savior still has towards us. Jesus is a compassionate king. But though Jesus is compassionate, he's still righteous and he's just. So this text ends on a somber note. If people reject Jesus' offer for peace, the only thing left is judgment. The destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus prophesied would occur here about 40 years later. The Jews would rebel against the Roman Empire. The Romans would lay siege to Jerusalem, and they would destroy the temple, leaving the temple, just as Jesus said, without having one stone on top of another. The people fell silent, and the stones of the temple cried out. Rejection of Jesus is acceptance of judgment. Throughout Jesus' life, there are several times when he does something miraculous, and he follows it up by telling the people to be quiet. He healed a man with leprosy and tells him not to say anything. Throughout his life, Jesus avoided all big public displays because he knew it would precipitate his death. He avoided all big public displays except for here on Palm Sunday. Jesus not only accepts the kingly recognition from the people, he leans into it, making it clear who he is. He's the king. And the direct nature of this demonstration leaves no room for anyone to sit on the fence. Either we accept him as king and savior or we don't. And I think at the heart of Palm Sunday is a statement and a question. The statement is that Jesus is king. The question is how are you going to respond to that? Maybe you're here seeing clearly for the first time that, that the things that Jesus did to make for your peace, and we would love to talk to you about that. Find me, find one of the pastors, find someone to talk to about how Jesus made for your peace. But maybe you're already here recognizing him as king. So now would be the right time for us just to rejoice over that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that before we realized we had a need, you already moved towards us to meet it. Thank you for, for your son. I thank you for, for his sacrifice. I thank you that, that even now still he looks at us with compassion. Even now still he's carrying our burdens. Even now still he's drawing near. So, Father, I pray that, that, that as we go about our days today, we would just soak and steep in that reality. That we have a king bringing a kingdom of perfection. But that king is still near. And he loves and he longs and he cares for us. I pray that we would trust him. I pray that we would worship him. I pray that he'd be honored and glorified by it all. In son's name we pray. Amen.